In these times of quarantine, isolation, and pandemic, I wanted to invite somebody on the podcast who could be helpful and offer some guidance on how to maintain clarity, calmness, composure, and compassion under these circumstances. So I invited Alan Weiss, someone who I've known for quite a few years, who I think certainly has the credentials and experience to help us out. Alan is a senior teacher at Insight LA, which is a noted hub for mindful meditation here in Southern California. And he's also director of Mindful USC, where he's been teaching hundreds of people ranging from students to doctors and medical professionals working in hospitals, teaching them mindfulness practices, how to meditate, and how to maintain a meditation habit. He definitely has many talents in this field. And I think one of Alan's expertise is, and I don't know, I don't know how you say the plural of expertise, expertises, is the ability to convey certain tips about how to mindfully deal with unpleasant, uncomfortable, difficult emotions. So we tackle those issues. But now, just a few announcements before we start. On May the 7th, I'll be doing a Facebook live stream talking about music as the bridge to mindfulness. It will be on the MMR Magazine Facebook page. That's Musical Merchandise Review Magazine, the magazine for, the, for NAM, uh, the National Association of Music Manufacturers. And that will be at 1 p.m., Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And also on May the 10th, Sunday, May the 10th, I will be participating in the 320 Mental Health Festival, which is a conference of mainly musicians and people associated with the music business and artists that are going to be talking about mental health issues the stigma about mental health and hints and guidance in terms of how to maintain mental health. So I'll be there and I'll be speaking with Erica Krusen, who is a senior director of the Recording Academy's Music Cares, which is their philanthropic arm to help musicians. And so I look forward to hopefully encountering you there, both on May the 7th on Facebook Live and on May the 10th at the 320 Mental Health Festival. And now, let's get started. I'm delighted to welcome Alan Weiss, Dr. Alan Weiss, a good friend of mine, a lovely human being, and a beloved teacher. Welcome, Alan Weiss, Dr. Weiss. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for having me. I'm sorry, I, I have to keep correcting myself and calling you doc. I'm not used to calling you a doctor, but you are a, a PhD, right? Right, I have a PhD, but I always tell people don't use that, just call me Alan. Yeah, one of my things I enjoy doing in life is calling people that don't want to be called doctor, doctor. That's funny. So it is It is a, a great privilege having you here because I know that in this time particularly, you're always busy teaching and helping people at Inside LA or USC or in various other venues, but... Uh, you seem to be especially busy now in the middle of this pandemic. Is that right? That's right. Our classes at uh, Mindful USC 
uh, have had almost a 86% increase just over the last month or so. So it's been pretty amazing. So tell us about Mindful USC. How does that work? What is that? Well, sure. I mean, Mindful USC is a service that right now comes out of the provost's office of USC. And what it does, I'm the director of Mindful USC, and what I do is I put on classes, uh, general classes for all of uh, faculty, staff, and students at USC, and also uh, for all the five hospitals of USC. And then we also do uh, targeted classes, like for staff of like Dornsife or um, Rossier. This is like the different schools at USC for the staff or the students or the faculty. And I also do a lot of presentations on mindfulness to people who are interested in it. So what are you doing at hospital? I remember you worked at Children's Hospital. I mean, you said five hospitals. Right. USC has... Uh, a children's Hospital is a USC hospital, and so I've done classes for the doctors and for the therapists and uh, anesthesiologists. Well, you've been doing this for quite a while before this pandemic, but what's the difference now that there's a pandemic to go into a hospital and, and teach mindfulness? Well, people are really stressed out, and so uh, it's just a much higher level than everybody's ever seen you know, fear and anxiety. And this has just been something that's been permeating for years, but at a lower level. And this has just raised it a much higher level. So before we get into exactly how we approach fear and anxiety, panic and stress, can you tell us, I know you started out early on as a musician, right? Isn't that right? Right. When I graduated you know, from college, I actually played at the Troubadour here in Los Angeles on a Monday night and uh, got recognized. And the next thing I know, I was on my way to Kansas City, of all places, and uh, grew up in a, a musician's family. Uh, I never really thought of myself as wanting to be a professional musician, but there I was. Yeah, you were pretty serious. I mean, you were, you were doing touring with this band, right? You were opening up for some big acts and some big venues. Yes. Biggest uh, venue I think I did was 10,000 seats. Um, wow. You know, we opened up for Bonnie Rayet and uh, Leonard Skinner and people like that. And so, uh -huh. so it was a lot of fun, but, you know, it was... I decided for myself that, you know, uh, I just talked to other musicians and other people. I saw there were some really great musicians who never went anywhere. And uh, it just seemed a little, the whole thing seemed a little bit more random to me. So I think, I think I just wanted a little bit more stability. And that's what led me to get my, eventually get my PhD. And then uh, my first job was at Stanford University. And uh, even though I was teaching in the business school at Stanford University, I was playing music in a coffee house in Palo Alto. So I was enjoying both sides of my life at that time. It was fun. And then you went, you got a PhD. What, what was the uh, field of interest? Originally I started in finance, but uh, by the time I came out, I was in marketing. And so I became a marketing professor. And that's what I basically stayed at for the last number of years. And so I came to USC and been here ever since, teaching, uh, et cetera. And uh, that's how I got involved with USC originally. And you also have a digital marketing company, right? Started out 
very, very small, which you've built up into a big company. Yeah, that actually relates to how I got, it's funny because it intertwines with how I got into mindfulness. So this happened a long time ago, it was like 1997, and I was living on a farm in France and noticed a sound going into my head, which uh, later turned out to be a brain tumor. And when I came back and I was diagnosed, and after I had a brain operation and then a gamma knife operation the next year after that, what people don't realize, and I certainly didn't realize, is that it really threw me off my track. Everything else that I had been interested in before had uh, kind of dissipated, and I felt kind of listless for about a year. And then I decided, this was like around the time the internet was just starting, and I decided to uh, you know, just use my programming skills. I actually have a, a, a degree in electrical engineering. That was my bachelor's. And... Uh, I decided I'd build a website. Nobody knew what a web, you know, it was just the very beginnings. And that um, basically turned into the company that I built, which is called Marketing Profs. But it was around that time that I was uh, struggling with a lot of anxiety and fear because I had to go back in every year to do an MRI because of this brain tumor. And that's when I started trying to do, uh, you know, I went to psychiatrists and therapists to try to deal with this anxiety and fear that I was like running into on a constant basis. And I did that for a few years. And then I uh, found a meditation retreat that I went on. And that's that basically kind of changed my whole life and how I got into mindfulness was as a result of that meditation retreat. And so that was, that enabled you to deal with your fear and anxiety? Yes, exactly. You know, Trudy Goodman, who's the founder of Inside LA, she's married to Jack Cornfield. She was the person teaching this retreat. It was actually in Malibu. And we kind of struck a deal because I knew how to build a website and her website was pretty bad. And so I offered to build her website and uh, we ended up becoming friends. And so she said, if I really wanted to, you know, kind of deal with some of the issues I was dealing with, I should start meditating 45 minutes a day. And uh, I was so desperate that I, that's what I did. I established a daily practice of uh, meditating 45 minutes every day and then an hour on Sunday. And Trudy also asked me to, uh, you know, she tried to fast track me into teaching. And so she, uh, she got me into the dedicated practitioners program at Spirit Rock and asked me to go on 30, 40 day silent retreats. And uh, one thing led to another. And that's how I ended up becoming a teacher. And that's basically what I did for years until uh, until I started doing the thing for, for USC back in 2014. Wow. So you have a really a, a varied background in terms of you're a musician, a PhD in marketing, and you start this marketing company, and you're a professor at USC in terms of in the business school, but you're also a mindfulness practitioner and teacher. You once said something to me that I... I really identify with and I think is so important, which is that people deny parts of themselves. Right. You know, and I relate to that as sometimes people think that they have to be musicians and they have to do that professionally. And, you know, if you're an artist, you've got angels and demons in your soul. 
and they're just driving you and telling you that your only purpose in life is to be an artist or be a musician. You need that. It's like Willie Nelson said, if you ain't crazy, there's something wrong with you. Right. And then when it doesn't get fulfilled, they feel they have no more purpose in life. Right. And and so when you said people deny parts of themselves, it's like, yeah, you have more than one purpose in life. Your purpose in, in life is limitless. Right. Yeah, I, I actually believe a lot of times what I, I do is what Louis Pasteur says, you know, that when a chance favors, you know, the prepared mind. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. or Kierkegaard says, you live life forward and you understand it backwards. And so uh, I, these are principles that I really adhere to, which is that we move forward, but we don't really understand what's going on until we look backwards. And... Um, and like you said, that, you know, people deny parts of their life. And so I've run into people who said, oh, I used to be that type of person, but you know, I'm not that person anymore. But, but that's, you know, that's like trying to like say, I don't want that being or whatever is to be part of the integral part of who I am today. The Buddha always said, this is what causes stress. And so, uh, you know, I'm, my interest is in lowering stress, not increasing it. Right. And mindfulness practice, meditation practice, really helped you deal with the fear and anxiety. Could you speak more about that? Like sure. In what way does it help people, you in particular, deal with the realities that anxiety and fear are a reaction to? Sure. I mean, emotions, uh, and even these difficult emotions, don't last very long. You know, if we really look carefully at these emotions, and I would uh, you know, I spent some time looking clearly at fear, uh, is that what we do is we react against it. We, we try to push it away or we don't want to think about it and do all these sorts of things. And I remember just sitting there in my doctor's office while he was looking at the MRI and, and just closing my eyes and just imagining fear was like rain, just rain that was raining down on me. And I just learned to just be with it, just be with it. And one of the things that you start realizing is that if you just are just allow the emotions to be just as they are without reacting to them or anything, that they don't last very long. And so you can watch fear go through you in 90 seconds, uh, maybe two minutes or so. Uh, any emotion, negative emotions, and particularly, uh, you know, that if you really just allow them to be, uh, they just don't last very long. So you have to, uh, you know, sometimes what we say in, in Buddhism is that you have to have faith. And so I just, I had faith in it. And so I tried it. I saw that in fact, they don't last very long. So uh, that was the way that I was able to I just start relating to fear and just realizing that it was something passing through me and that I didn't have to believe all the thinking that I was doing. So I would look at thoughts and I would see something come up that would say, oh, this is like going to happen. And I, I just stop and I'd say, is that true? Is this really true? And this is what mindfulness does, is it, it, it turns you, instead of away from your thinking, away from these emotions, you actually go in the opposite direction. You're actually turning towards the thinking, towards the emotion, but you're looking at them in a completely different way. Well, you came to this stability 
and calmness of being able to look at fear without getting all entangled in it through right. meditation practice. Isn't that right? Okay. Yes, that's exactly right. Right. So you can't just tell somebody, uh, just look at your fear. It's not going to last very long. It's going to come and go like everything else in life. Right. It just rises and passes away. But, but you can't just tell them that. They have to sit and... And watch it and see it themselves. Yeah. And also learn how to see, I guess that's right, learn how to see their thinking, right? How to right. how to connect with their basic awareness right. that's there before the thinking comes. Right, right. We all relate to everything emotionally first, and then our thinking comes second. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you just have to start appreciating that, okay, these thoughts that I have, before these thoughts, there was an emotion that, kind of like uh, preceded that. And uh, a lot of this uh, thinking that we do just comes from our, uh, our amygdala or just, they're just arousals that happen that, you know, as I often say, when I teach meditation, you know, I ask people in the room, I'll say, okay, has anybody here ever said, I'd really like to be anxious right now? And of course, we, <laughs> people laugh and they, they, and the reason is, is that we don't choose to be anxious. We don't, we as human beings, we don't choose these emotions. It's not part of our prefrontal cortex. We don't choose these things, but we do choose what we want to react to and what we want to just respond to. So, right. you know, I always say, don't take these, I mean, that's a key thing about emotions is that they're not who you are. So if you have fear or anxiety, what's actually happening is that you're having the experience of fear it's an experience of anxiety. It's not who you are. Right. Okay. But, you know, people actually use the wrong language. They'll say, I am anxious. And so with mindfulness, we just, we teach people to kind of just say, okay, anxiety is like this. And actually just saying it that way, just saying it without the I or me or my in it is actually allows the emotion to have less of a grip on you and allows it to go along its way. Like I always say, the word emotion has the word motion in it, because that's what an emotion wants to do, is to move. And so when we say, I am anxious, you're basically saying, I don't want you to move. Right. I mean, that's a good habit to have uh, in general, it says, I am walking. So yeah. saying, I am walking, you say, well, there's yeah. bodily sensation of movement here. Yeah, this is what's going on right now. Yeah. I am hearing, well, there is sound here. Yeah, this is hearing. This, this is hearing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting. And Trudy Goodman recommended that you meditate for 45 minutes a day. That's basically how you started your serious meditation practice. Right. right. That was my, you know, that's not what I tell my students to do. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, because that's a pretty big jump. What do you tell them to do? I, I mean, I tell my students now just to practice the first week, just do five minutes or more. And by the third week, which, you know, I'm telling them to meditate until they feel uncomfortable meditating and then meditate for five more minutes. Because I want people to actually experience difficult meditations because that's when you get a chance to practice what is it like to just accept the difficulty just accept it. And this is actually what builds your ability, builds your capability to deal with difficult situations when you're not meditating, because you've been practicing it, just like a musician 
practices. You know, you don't want to just practice simple things. You want to practice harder things, even things that you screw up on, but you want to keep practicing on it because you know that when you get up in front of people and you're going to do something, you're going to be really glad that you practice the hard parts, you know, but, you know, people think mindfulness and meditation should be this blissful, you know, calming, wonderful, you know, experience. And I, I, I try to try to point out to them that if it's just calming and peaceful, you're not learning anything. No, it's great that you tell them to keep practicing yeah. when it's uncomfortable. What what if it isn't uncomfortable? What if they're just, you know, they're just having a wonderful time because yeah. they're enjoying the pleasures of peace? Oh, yeah. No, that's a wonderful thing to have peace. But if every meditation you do is just peace, then which is great, and then you get refuge, but it doesn't necessarily teach you what you need to deal in the real world. That's my concern. Right. And now you alluded to something which, of course, I can't let escape. You said that practicing meditation, mindfulness, is like practicing a musical instrument. Yeah. So on a personal level, do you think, or have you thought about it, or do you think now that the fact that you practiced, you were a serious musician in your youth, um, that that relates to the discipline that you had to go to a retreat for 30 days? Yeah. Because I think when you hear, uh, people don't really talk about this, but you know, you you hear this a lot, uh, especially when you're around Buddhists and teachers of Buddhism and stuff like that. They'll say, "Oh, the practice, the practice." You'll always hear the word "practice" a lot in there. Mm -hmm. And I think about it when I was, you know, growing up, and I was practicing piano or cello or drums, uh, guitar, which is the instruments that I grew up playing. That practice you know, was really important. And so, uh, you know, I kind of like related to that. And so if I went on a retreat, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going there and, you know, the first couple of days is usually horrible uh, because nobody likes to be locked up on a retreat for, mm -hmm. <laughs> at, mm -hmm. at first. But, you know, if you just encode it and say, this is practice, this is, this is just exactly the practice, like any other skill, like being a musician, being an artist, you know, being a good cook, all of these are practices of a skill, uh, then it becomes a, you frame it in a whole different way. Yeah. And, and I think it's great that you tell students that when it comes, when it becomes difficult, when you're practicing meditation, to practice another five minutes, because that's going to train you into accepting or coexisting right. with difficult situations that you're going right. to find yourself. I think that's great. I, as a musician, you, you you were talking about, and we experienced this. You practice hard passages or passages that you can't master, right. and you don't think that this is difficult or or I'm having a difficult time. You just are focused on getting it right, and, right. and so it doesn't occur to you that this is something that's difficult necessarily. It's just something I just need to repeat. Right which is the essence of practice is repetition. Right? That's exactly the same thing with the practicing here. It's the same skill development, you know, and you know, that perfection mind that everybody has is that's the thing that gets in the way right. of practicing um, music or practicing uh, mindfulness. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get better at it, right. but you're putting your attention on the wrong thing. It's the process rather than the outcome. Right. 
But the difference is that when you're practicing music and you're going through a difficult passage, you're not thinking, oh, I'm feeling that I'm going through a difficult time right now. It's not important what you're feeling. It's important to master the musical phrase. That's what's important, not what you're feeling. Whereas right. the difference in mindfulness, you are aware, because you're not necessarily practicing an instrument, but you're aware that you're having a difficult time or a difficult emotion. It's a different level of awareness. Right, that's right. So when you have people come to you with these problems, you, you tell them, listen, it's going to take five minutes a day uh, of practice to begin with in the first week. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting because I've also studied a little bit about how to change habits because what we're doing here is I'm changing habits, right? People are not used to meditating. And so uh, the literature on habits kind of suggests that you don't want to change, try to give somebody a new habit by making uh, what they're doing uh, well beyond what their uh, tolerance level is. And just so you know, when people come to meditation, almost the first thing in their minds is how long do I have to do it for? So I take that, that, that notion that time is going to be the big thing and just tell people, okay, let's try something really simple and get you just to do five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I also try to make sure that they, uh, they would do the same thing. And so it's actually interesting because I use a musician analogy. I say, if you want to learn to play guitar, you don't buy a guitar and put it in the closet. You leave it outside so that you see, oh yeah, I've got to go practice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I tell my students, I say, okay, pick a chair or whatever that makes it, it's in a really public place where you go buy it all the time. And so again, I'm trying to, to help them with their habit, mm -hmm. habit change. Mm -hmm. And then I always tell them, don't think about like, I'm going to meditate you know, I tell them is to reframe it and think about, I'm going to learn how to quiet my mind. That's what I'm going to go do. Mm. And then I tell them to reward themselves. And so everything I just told you, those four things are, are really just from the habit change literature. And uh, I'm just basically telling my students to do it that way. How do they reward themselves? Well, I, I'll give you a classic example. I say, look at, you know, maybe you wake up in the morning and you drink, let's say two cups of coffee, let's just say. So you drink your first cup of coffee and then, and so this is like tying it into a habit already because you already have this habit of drinking like one cup of coffee and then another cup of coffee. I always say, okay, take one cup of coffee, then go to your meditation and then reward yourself with a second cup of coffee or, or breakfast or something like that. Again, you know, do I want them meditating for forever? Uh, no. In fact, ju just so people understand that there's not much research that's been done on how long you have to meditate uh, before you start seeing benefits. You know, meditation teachers will always give you some, you know, kind of, I don't know, something that, that they came up with or somebody else told them. But there's not really a lot of really hard research that says, you know, if you meditate for 45 minutes, that that is really, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, 50% better than just doing like 30 minutes, right? Or that, and that's, that's another 100% better than just doing 15 minutes. We don't know that. We don't know that. So what I try to do is to have people meditate 
and then phenomenologically experience whether or not they're seeing the benefits. And uh, the first thing I've realized is that for a lot of people, they don't personally say, wow, I'm not that reactive anymore. I seem to be taking things better. But other people in their lives report it back to them. So it's very common for somebody to say, I didn't realize that I was getting calmer through this meditation, but you know, my husband or wife or child or friend or somebody mentioned it to me. So I try to get people to really tune into like what are the benefits that they're actually getting and uh, tie that to how much they're meditating. And in general, I'd say that people you know, probably get into a standard 10 to 15 minutes a day meditation where they start realizing that it's really having an effect on their daily lives. Yeah, when when I first heard people recommending five minutes of meditation, uh, I was very skeptical about that because all the training that I ever had since I was a teenager was uh, 20 to 30 minutes at least once a day. Right. And, you know, in Zen, it's like 30 minutes, then you get up and do walking meditation for five to 10 minutes, and then you sit down again for 30 minutes. So, right. That's that. That's the That's exactly what I heard, too. And then you start hearing, oh, five minutes. And by the way, I have, I have heard uh, some research, neuroscientific research, that, um, and I don't know, it, you're right, it's not extensive, and none of this is extensive, but according to neuroscientific research that I've heard is that even five minutes, you're opening up a new neural pathway in your brain or making new connections in your, in your brain. Right. Uh, neurologically speaking. So there, there is some benefits to the five minutes. That's right. And I think in general, I mean, maybe my students are just trying to, to please me, but uh, the vast majority of them say that, they noticed a difference in their lives and they notice when they, you know, skip a few days, how, right. how different they feel. Right. It can be very noticeable after just a few weeks. Right. I think this is what a lot of people find. But, you know, it, a lot of this, again, it's like if you take somebody who's brand new to music and they practice for like six weeks and they don't feel they're getting better, you know, you have to have them practicing long enough. You know, I always say that mindfulness practice is like a, it's like a lot of practices. Uh, You know, it's always interesting because I remember, I remember when I learned how to play with a finger pick. Okay. And, uh, and I was uh, using a metronome and this, this is exactly my experience. And I would, I would sit on a porch and I would just play, you know, scales, you know, you know, to the metronome. And I went on for like a few weeks and it wasn't getting better. It was like getting worse and some days were better and some days were worse. And I remember one day, it was like all of a sudden, I was like five times better than I'd ever been before. It was Mm -hmm. faster, cleaner and everything. And I didn't understand it, but now I do. But really what mindfulness is, is more like a quantum leap uh, model of uh, learning. So it's not like a, a, a learning process that just is linear, like the more you do, the better you get, the more you do, the better you get. But there's a lot of uh, skill development that actually, the more you do, you go, some days are good, some days are bad, some days are good, some days are bad. But if you stay with it long enough, you'll get to that first quantum leap. 
And then if you stay with that, you might have to stay with that for a while and nothing will happen. And then you'll get to another quantum leap. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different way of thinking about learning and practicing that sometimes you don't get better, you get worse and then you get better and then you get worse. And so for a lot of people that's demotivating because in their minds, they think it should be better every day. And when in fact, uh, once you just realize, oh, I'm on a different process here, you can stay with it longer and then you can get to that first quantum leap. And that's that's pretty much what I experience with students is that if, if I can just get them to stay through the whole class. I mean, inside LA, we used to do six week classes and the teachers would say, we really need eight weeks for people to get this kind of, we call it escape philosophy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I, I've seen it actually happen for some people a lot faster. They'll come up to me and they'll say, wow, something happened this week, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. just, you know, I just see everything in a different way. And it's because they, they just kind of hit that first quantum leap where they just realize it's okay to just be okay with the way things are. Take some time. Right. And meditation is a, a spectrum, right? So a spectrum of experiences, of insights, of discoveries, of changes. Right. So when you have somebody and you're teaching them meditation and they can't focus on their breathing because their breathing is difficult. Right. They're having difficulty breathing. And they have a problem, a physical problem, where if they're focusing on their body, it activates certain symptoms that cause them pain. Right. So how do you teach people like that? Uh, you know, it, it turns out that, you know, if you think about like what we're doing with the mind, we just need something that's in the present moment. And uh, body sensations are in the present moment, but if somebody can't do that, the breath is in the present moment, they can't do that. Uh, then what I do is I would have them put attention on their hearing. This is a classic case. Again, what you're doing is you're putting your attention on something that's in the present moment. So if I'm just hearing sound without like saying, okay, this is a bird or this is this and all mm-hmm. of that, which is the conceptualization, but just on this is hearing, this is the sound waves hitting my ears, etc and keep your attention there, that is in the present moment. So that's what you need. And then when your attention wanders away, then you just relax and come back to that sound. So, uh, you know, so that's another way of, of getting people to just notice this, the present moment without having to focus on their breath, which as you say, is difficult for some people, you know, just focusing on body sensations. And so for some people, what I've done is said, look, you know, what you should do is just do some mindful walking, mm-hmm. which is the same thing because you're putting your attention on body sensations as you walk. Mm-hmm. That's the present moment. And then as your mind wanders off, you just notice that and then bring it back. So it's, it's really, you just need an object that's in the present moment, you know, mm-hmm. and then a mind that pays attention to the sensations of that present moment. And then, uh, and then since your attention will wander away, it's just training your mind to just relax and not react to it and just bring it back. That's the training of mindfulness. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, right now, we're talking about listening to sound. I've been listening to your sound, the sound right. of your voice, and I'm really relaxed, and I'm calm, and I'm peaceful, 
and I feel terrific <laughs> just yeah, listening to the sound of no, your voice. Well, it's, it's funny because my students always say they fall asleep to my voice, and I say I have a late night jazz radio voice. You know? <laughs> I'm sitting here at three in the morning on whatever station it is. You know, no, I'm very awake. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm very. You, you didn't put me to sleep. You woke yeah, me up. Yeah, actually. Yeah. That's okay. In a calm way. Yeah. But when you're recommending that people listen to sound, is there a yeah. particular sound or you're asking them to just listen to the sounds in the environment, in the yeah, interior? Yeah, really sounds in the environment. It's, it's a, the, the trick with this is that if they're listening to something that they like or don't like, or they go, oh, I like that sound or I don't like that sound, then they're not practicing mindfulness anymore because mm -hmm. they're using judgment. Right. Right. What I try to get people to do is just, you know, go outside and just uh, listen and put your attention on the fact that you're hearing, right? You know, so sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll just sit outside and I'll go, this is hearing, this is hearing. And so what I'm really doing is I'm putting my attention on the process of hearing right. rather than this, the object of what I'm hearing. That's something that Jack Kornfield taught me uh, years and years ago. Uh, when I was sitting there listening, I was on my bed listening to some bees, and I noticed that I had this hearing, and then I had the hearing of the bees. And I asked him, I said, what should I put my attention on? And he said, put it on the process, just the hearing. So uh, you can do that, and you'll hear all, all sorts of things, because you'll just say, this is hearing, this is hearing. That opens you up. You're not hearing, you're not focusing on any one thing. You're hearing everything. You know, so if you do it outside and you just say, this is hearing, this is hearing, what'll come in will be fire engines from miles away will come in, mm -hmm. and birds will come in, mm -hmm. and all these different things will come in. And you realize how limitless your energy field of awareness exactly. is, right? Yeah. There's no edge, there's no border to it. Exactly. You're, that's exactly what you're experiencing. And how miraculous it is. Yeah. And all this is going on, that this hearing yeah. is going on, and all these sounds are coming yeah. up and changing and disappearing. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. But you say sitting outside, what happens if you're sitting inside? Uh, you mean like, what do you do when you're inside? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, inside is a little bit different, but you can do the same thing. I mean, you'll just hear, you won't hear birds uh, so much, but you'll hear the creaks of a house, settling of a house. And, Oh yeah, there's a million things you could hear. Oh yeah, there's a million. I mean, and that really opens your experience up to all the stuff that you're filtering out as you go through the day. You know, this is the reason why when people go on retreats, they'll say, "Oh, I heard things I never heard before. I saw things I never saw before, and all of that." It's all been there. They just kind of filtered it out. And so, a lot of ways, what mindfulness is doing by just not reacting. And just opening and relaxing and just hearing and just being uh, is actually open in your perspective to like a limited, limitless world of possibilities. And, uh, and you know, that's what the practice is literally all about. What do you think about listening to music and meditation? Well, I think, you know, again, I love music and I like to listen to music. But I, the problem—the only problem with music is that if I'm judging it, like if I'm listening to music and I go, oh, I really like this, this is really great, then the problem with mindfulness is, is that mindfulness is non-judgmental. 
So if you're listening and saying, I like that, I don't like that, I like that, and I don't like that, well, you're not really practicing non-judgmental awareness. You're practicing, literally, you're practicing judgments. And uh, that's, the, that's the only problem that I personally run into if I'm listening to music and I say, okay, I'm going to just use that as part of my uh, kind of like practice. And I'm very sensitive to this because on the Mindful USC app that we have, I've worked with the guy who actually does sounds outdoors. And so he's an audiologist. And I remember him sending me these sounds and I did an open awareness meditation to these sounds. And I was thinking while I was doing it, I was going, people are going to just go, I love this background sound. And I was thinking, okay, this is good for relaxation, but it's not good for building the skills of non-judgment, you know? And that's, again, this is like, I'm just saying like what the Buddha would have said about it. Right. Well, bringing up the Buddha, one thing that always uh, strikes me, whenever you see pictures of the Buddha, he's got a little smile on his face, right? Yeah. So he's enjoying himself, and yeah. he's allowing himself to, to like what's happening. Yeah. So sometimes it's all right. To, if, you're having, if you're feeling blissful or pleasures of peace or whatever, you can smile. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, right? So what is the hardest thing that you have to deal with uh, when people are coming to you with their issues now, especially? Well, right now, the hardest thing is, you know, the, the anxiety and fear that people have because of this situation that we're in. So people are very, uh, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And so trying to help them just be with it, you know, just being with it and not using their head to process it, but just uh, just looking in their body and spending time in their body and seeing how the the experiences of of, of the the emotion are body sensations. Um, for a lot of people, that's just really hard. They've never done it. They don't have the skills. Again, you know, just go back to music. It's like asking people in the middle of all this to play really difficult pieces mm. of music they don't have the skills they've never done it they haven't played mary had a little lamb they never practice scales or anything and you're asking them to do this right uh, and so this is the reason why i try to get these people you know i don't like to do this in presentations i like them to take them literally through a five-week class right. and the way i conceptualize it i say week one is scales second week is arpeggios Third week is Mary had a little lamb. You know, fourth week we started embedding, embedding some orchestra orchestration uh, around that. You know, and I'm building them up. You know, I'm trying to build them up in a systematic way because otherwise, if I don't do that, uh, literally they're just being dumped in the middle of like uh, an orchestra who've never played an instrument and said play, and they they don't know how to. That's my job is to get people into a systematic practice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's no substitute for practice. Yeah. It's training, right? Just like any yeah. kind of training. Yeah. No magic bullet. Mindfulness no. is not, you know, you don't listen. It, it no. can, a, a lecture could set you on the path. Yeah, exactly. But you have to follow that path. Yeah. What is the hardest thing that people telling you, 
I'm trying to have a meditation practice. I just and they, and they just resist it. Right. A, what is the re- the hardest reason to overcome for resisting it? Yeah. Well, what are some of the things that you encountered in terms of reasons why people can't do it? I think I think the biggest problem that pe- people have with mindfulness is that they make a mistake of thinking that it's a concentration practice. And it's it's one of the things that I now spend more time on on the very first class is making sure that people because you see what'll happen is people they're they're expecting they're literally coming expecting that a successful meditator will just immediately be able to have this blissful experience. So one of the things I do to kind of help with that is that when I do the first meditation, my guidance that I give them is really like, like I'm almost like talking like a person whose mind is going crazy. And so I'm trying to model for them, okay, your mind is going crazy. Uh, my mind is going crazy, so what do I do about it? You know, how do I handle this? Because um, when people say, oh, I have a wandering mind, uh, that's the most likely for them. That's that's the biggest problem that people have. And then the second problem that they have is people who come to a class who want to know how to play jazz when they haven't ever played scales. And you've got to try to explain to them they got to play uh, scales first uh, before they can play jazz. And um, a lot of people, they, they, they just want to come to mindfulness and start playing jazz, you know. Right. You know, and and during this pandemic, uh, it's it's one of the reasons why, like during the first class, when I'm teaching them scales or mindfulness of the breath, I always end with like a practice that can help them kind of uh, deal with some of the difficult emotions that they're having right now. But I always tell them, I'm saying, here's something that you can do right now, but I'll be talking more about this in a couple of weeks. Can Can you give us an example? Of, of what I tell them? Yeah, or a specific exercise you said that you give? You know, I, I say to everybody, to these people, as I say, okay, I want you to say these words to yourself. And so you're going to first check in with yourself and say, my body and my heart and my mind are holding a lot right now. This is stressful. This is difficult. This is really hard. So I get them to just kind of say that to themselves, which is really what's going on right now for them, that they're holding a lot of stress, it's difficult, it's hard. Mm -hmm. But then I have them remember and say to themselves, I am not alone. This is what it's like to be human right now. Each and every one of us, we're all having a hard time and there's nothing wrong with me feeling this way. And then I ask them, you know, what would you do for a friend right now? Can you do that for yourself? Can I just listen to what I need and offer this to myself with kindness? And, you know, so I did this right before we got together here today because I was doing a class and we're not on emotions, but I just said to people, I said, I want you just to do this right now. People will say, okay, that really helps. That really helps. And that's what I'm trying to do is just get them a little bit of help until I can really get into a a session on dealing with emotions. Yeah, I love that uh, what you say, this is what it's like to be human right now. Yeah. It's it's really just uh, three things. I mean, it's just the first part is just saying, okay, this is really hard. 
this is really difficult and you're just accepting, you're accepting and, and using words to it by saying this is really hard, this is really difficult right now. And then the second thing you're saying to yourself is just real, recognizing that this is universal, right? I have fear, people in Iran have fear, people in Mozambique have fear, people in New York have fear. We all have fear. This is, this is something that's universal. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with having this emotion right now. It's very normal and it's very universal. And then the last part is just basically what I tell them after I've done this, as I say, you know, what I've basically done is said, if you had a friend who was having a difficulty, what would you say to them? You'd probably say, well, that's really hard. I really feel for you. I really understand, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't do that for ourselves. So the last part is just saying, may I do this for myself? Yeah. That's lovely. That's really lovely. And and the part about, uh, again, this is what it's like to be human, that applies, I mean, it applies to so many different situations. You don't have to yeah. be stuck in a pandemic. I mean, you could be stuck in traffic right. and you're feeling all uh, frustrated yeah. And uh, somebody just cut you off or whatever, and you want to kill yeah. them, and then you say, "Okay, I'm frustrated. This is what it feels like to be human." Yeah, these are natural emotions. You know, these are just emotions. Every single human being on this earth has these same emotions, and so it's just a recognizing of the universality of it all. And I think that's a like an important uh, kind of simple practice that people can do, and. Uh, and it's, and it's got mindfulness in it. It's got a little self-compassion in it. It's got kind of like a kind of a, a universal understanding of what's going on and that this is life. And so it's a good way to practice. Yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. Let me ask you, is there uh, anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Well, I think the last thing I would say is if there's anything I've learned about all of this, is really when we are happy is when we're totally immersed and engaged in something. That's really key. You know, if you just look at your life or you look at yourself and say, when I've been totally immersed, totally immersed, totally consumed by something that I really enjoyed, you know, you're happy. And I, I would, would look at those things and say, I need to do more of those things because if anything has taught me about mindfulness and Buddhism and everything is that when we are just totally engaged in something, it could be engaged in the breath, right? It could be engaged in music or something, but lost in something where there's no sense of me. This is key. Mm -hmm. You can't, it can't be about you. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be, you just in, in totally immersed in something. Our minds like it, our hearts like it, uh, and uh, that's what makes us happy. And uh, it's a good time to explore it. We're stuck at home, so look around and see what it is that you can do that you can be totally involved in and, uh, and try that. Well, especially if you're doing music, you're just completely focused on the music, not about you, it's about the music, right? Yeah, that's why music is so important, yeah. All right, well, this has been uh, fantastic. 
Well, thank you, Richard. And I wish you all good wishes. And to everybody out in your audience, uh, I would just uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to share the practice with all of you. Is there anything you want to, uh, any way people can follow what you're doing? or uh, You know, they don't need to follow me. Follow their <laughs> follow follow their uh, soul. That's what I would suggest. To you. All right. All right. Well, thanks for all the good words and teachings. Thank you so much, Richard, and you be well. Thank you. Well, I hope that was of some help to you. I know it was helpful for me. Uh, just a quick, a couple of quick notes. When Alan says that. Meditation is not concentration. To clarify, the instructions for concentration, sometimes, especially beginning Zen students or whatever, don't include the fact that you will get distracted and that's okay. Be aware that you've been distracted and just gently bring your attention back to the point of concentration. So the idea is that it's okay that you get distracted. That's natural. That's human. It's part of the meditation process. And now I think most meditation teachers include those instructions when they are teaching concentration, focusing all your attention on one point or in one direction. Because concentration is the foundation of meditation, of music, and also of mindfulness. So a quick reminder, too, that on May the 7th, I will be appearing on Facebook live stream, being interviewed by Jamie Blackman of the Musical Merchandise Review magazine. That's a mouthful. Uh, on their page, on their Facebook page. So please join us. And that will be at 4 o'clock Eastern time, which is 1 o'clock in California time or Pacific time. And then on May the 10th, in quick succession, I will be at the uh, 320 Mental Health Festival, and that's online, and on the panel about uh, mental health in the entertainment industry. So I hope you guys uh, can keep track of this and find something useful and comforting that you might be hearing at any of these events. Uh, I'd like to thank, of course, the people that help with this podcast, the very terrific intern Michael Azuma, the very talented Lanny Rinaldo, and my star co-producer, the Hannah Bowers. I am supposed to remind you that if you like the podcast, please leave us a review and a rating, and please share it with every single human being that comes into your frame of awareness. And uh, I just want to say in closing that until next time, we hope you stay in a higher octave and let's stay in tune.